Many questions about a police shelter in place warning in eastern Ontario. Anglos rally to save the Montreal Gazette, kinda. The Canadian Army is getting more fast-tracked gear, and the death toll rises past 33,000 in Syria and Turkey as Turkish officials seek to prosecute building developers. Good morning. It's Monday, February 13th. I'm Nora, and here are your headlines. On Friday, the Ontario Provincial Police put out an emergency alert telling people who live in Charlotte Lake and Lanark County, west of Ottawa, to lock their doors and windows because there were two armed suspects on the loose. The two men's names, with photos and descriptions, were shared on social media by the OPP. The alert was issued just after noon. By 2.01, less than two hours later, the OPP tweeted that the alert had been lifted and that, quote, more details will be released later. Well, it's Monday, and what details do we have? A man was arrested, but he was not one of the two they had initially warned people to run home, lock their doors and windows, and call 911 if they had seen. This man was charged with dangerous operation of a vehicle, flight from a police officer, operation of a vehicle while prohibited, and possession of stolen property obtained by crime. This is what the CBC reports. The two men had been called in by someone who reported seeing two men with a handgun. But 24 kilometers south in Smith's Falls, the third person was arrested, fleeing in a stolen vehicle. That was in Beckwith, where to stop the fleeing vehicle guy, police had, quote, deployed drones and a helicopter to search the park near Beckwith Recreation Center while canine units searched inside the building, unquote. The township reeve, Richard Kidd, did some copaganda saying, quote, it gave comfort knowing how quickly they could arrive and how quickly they could get their job done. Except anyone reading along or listening along as you might be doing right now is probably wondering, what? Helicopters, drones, and a canine unit inside a rec center to search for a stolen vehicle? While the two people who were the subject of the shelter-in-place order were nowhere? The mayor of Frontenac, Frances Smith, told CBC, quote, she locked herself and her two grandsons in her home and the township closed its office. Like there are consequences to these calls being put out by police and how it went from two people whose photos and names were shared on social media to being a completely separate guy in a completely separate incident is something that the OPP will probably never have to actually account for. CBC's unbylined article says, quote, how or if the other two men were involved in the incident remains unclear, unquote. The OPP wouldn't answer any of CBC's questions about the two men who the OPP had tweeted earlier that day they were looking for. Indeed, as the headline says, we are left with a lot of questions. In two hours, the OPP managed to scare people into locking themselves indoors tweeted out images of two men who were not the people that eventually got arrested, arrested a third person with a police response to a stolen vehicle that sounds over the top. Sorry to the Reeve, but it does. 
I doubt we'll hear the details about this, but it's a good reminder that there is a lot about emergency alerts that are issued to the public that we do not know, though we deserve to know considering that their use is supposed to indicate some kind of severe danger. If the police have the power to tell us all to hide for some number of hours, they also have the responsibility to tell us what the heck is happening. It's worth mentioning that the information in this article that leaves us with pretty much no information was gathered by no less than five journalists. When the police want to control the narrative and they refuse to talk and not even five journalists can gather information to what happened to give us a better idea than the standard police news release, we have a severe problem. Though I do have to say kudos to those five journalists for trying. Now to Montreal, where a group of politicians, business people, and community organizers are fighting to stop layoffs at the Montreal Gazette. The newspaper is critical to the city's English language community. The Montreal Gazette is owned by Post Media, a company that doesn't give a rat's ass about Montreal's English community and who cares even less about journalism. While cuts were supposed to be 11% per the company's announcement, the cuts that are being kicked around by management at the Gazette would equal 25% of the paper's editorial staff. The article in Global News by Phil Carpenter quotes several people pleading with, I guess, Post Media about how important the paper is to English speakers in Montreal and therefore needs to be saved from the cuts. Carpenter writes, quote, they want to lobby the Quebec National Assembly to have a resolution or a statement made in support of the paper, as well as draft an open letter to Justin Trudeau to intervene, unquote. I can't imagine a worse course of action, to be honest. Sorry, English Montreal, but that's capitalism for you. They'd be better off raising money to actually buy the paper from Post Media than hoping that for some reason the Prime Minister of Canada will save it. If the English minority in the city actually wants to save their journalism, they've got to pony up the money. It's as simple as that. Luckily, there are a few wealthy Anglos still kicking around who might be able to find the money that would be enough to convince Post Media to relinquish the paper. That's my guess, though. We'll see what happens. Now to national news from another Post Media paper, The Ottawa Citizen. Another article from David Pulezi, who I know I quote a lot on this podcast, but it's because he's not only one of Canada's only military journalists, he's consistently the best. So get used to it. Last week, Pulezi reported that the Army is, quote, fast-tracking its purchase of anti-tank weapons and air defense system to be used by its troops stationed in Latvia, defense industry officials have been told. The article goes on, in addition, the Army will buy a computer drone system to be used for Operation Reassurance, the Canadian Forces mission in Eastern Europe, unquote. There is no price tag for the equipment yet. The Army didn't respond to requests for timelines of purchases or cost estimates, but Pulezi cites industry reps who say that it will be more than $500 million. To avoid a procurement process, the equipment is being deemed urgent operational requirement that allows it to jump over the regular processes of procurement where federal agencies have to get quotes from different companies to see if they're getting the best price. Pelezi notes that this was the same process to quickly obtain equipment used during the war in Afghanistan. As is the case with most of his articles, Pulezi adds useful history to let readers understand whether 
the news fits into a pattern or has ever been tried before. And so I do encourage you to read it because he does highlight some instances in the past that allows us to understand what might be happening now. But one that I want to note in particular is about the Javelin systems, which are being used in Ukraine right now to destroy Russian tanks. In 2005, the government had approved $194 million to purchase either Javelins or Spike missiles. Pulezi writes, quote, companies put their bids in to provide 840 missiles and more than 100 firing systems. Test firings of both weapons were conducted, both the Spike and Javelins. But a year later, the bids were rejected as the army determined it didn't have enough information to figure out whether the weapons would be effective on the battlefield. The project then went by the wayside. No procurement processes in this would stop anything like that from happening to this equipment. And finally, to Turkey and Syria, where the death toll of the wave of earthquakes that hit the region last week has surpassed 33,000 people. Turkish officials have targeted more than 130 people who they say were, quote, involved in shoddy and illegal construction methods as rescuers extricated more survivors, including a pregnant woman and two small children six days after a pair of earthquakes collapsed thousands of buildings, unquote. While Turkey's buildings are supposed to meet earthquake engineering standards, there is little enforcement. This is why so many buildings collapsed so quickly on the people inside, says the article from the Associated Press. One example cited are two people who were accused of cutting columns in a building to make extra room inside. The building collapsed during the earthquakes. The country is also trying to stop others who might be eventually charged from leaving Turkey. Two were stopped from apparently trying to get to Georgia. One of them said that he had done nothing wrong. Of the 44 buildings that he built, only four were demolished. Relief workers have been consistently pulling survivors from the rubble, but the work is difficult and is stymied by damage that has been caused by the earthquakes. The worst affected area in Turkey is an area of 500 kilometers in diameter and has about 13.5 million inhabitants. Meanwhile, in Syria, the UN Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs, Martin Griffiths, has said that the Syrians have felt abandoned. They've not received much international help at all and are desperate for it. Those are your headlines for Monday, February 13th. I'm Nora, and I hope you have a wonderful Monday.